Chris. You sound like you're so excited. I'm not. I'm putting on a show. You're, you're deceptively charming, aren't you? I try to be. As I'm wrapped as no one else can see in, like, my big fuzzy, like, blanket cloak thing that I wear half the time. Oh, I need to get out my clementines, as is tradition. Well, while you're eating your clementines, we are going to start talking about one of our favorite subjects. Which and is, people! And people! Yeah, one of our favorite people whose research is on one of our favorite subjects, which suggests that that clementine might play a large role in our diets. Which is also right. interesting. Uh, absolutely. So we have Dr. Brianna Pobener on today. She had a recent article come out in PNAS with Andrew Barr titled, No Sustained Increase in Zoo Archaeological Evidence for Carnivory After the Appearance of Homo Erectus. So for those of you who don't know, and, and you really should, if you are interested in paleoanthropology, you should be familiar with Brianna Pobner's work and her legacy and her impact because she is a paleoanthropologist whose research focuses on the evolution of the human diet, which is not necessarily why you should all know her yet. She has been, for the past several years, the person basically spearheading the education efforts on mm -hmm. evolution coming out of the Smithsonian Museum. She actually helped develop the Human Origins exhibit and has so cool. uh, the Hall of Human Origins. And this is super impressive because the Smithsonian is a big, big thing. In 2005, she helped put together the Hall of Human Origins. She continued active field research in Africa and elsewhere, lab work, experimental research, and she leads the Human Origins education and outreach efforts, which includes some not insignificant things like managing all the public programs, the website mm -hmm. content, social media, and the exhibition volunteer training. If I'm not mistaken, she got the AABA like outreach award last year. This year was, was Katie Hine, but I think she was last year. Yeah, she also got the Leaky Foundation Communication and Outreach Award. And she got the 2021 National Center for Science Education Friend of Darwin Award. She is a rock star. Such a rock also, star. Her work is primarily in Kenya, Tanzania, South Africa, Indonesia, supported by Fulbright Hayes. She's actually been working in Alabama with biology school teachers. She's been funded by the Leakey Foundation, National Geographic, all of the big names. I want to hear about whoops of hyenas and watching lions eat zebra carcasses. Ooh. Hi, Brianna. Can you hear us? I can. Can you hear me all right? Actually, wonderfully. Your sound quality is amazing. Oh, good. Brianna, thank you so much for taking the time today uh, to talk with us because we know you have a very busy schedule with the Smithsonian and your research and all the amazing outreach and a kid and a cat and all the amazing things. Uh, and so thank you so much for coming on to the show today. We always start the episodes in the same way, which is getting to know a little bit more about you and how you got into, specifically for you, paleoanthropology. So maybe tell us about your origin story. Sure. So I love to tell the story, especially when I'm talking to kids that I wasn't super into science when I was a kid. I really liked writing. I thought I might major in English. Maybe I'd be a poet. I liked communication in general. And then I got to college and I was working with my dean my first semester trying to find a fourth class. I was taking freshman English. I was taking 
calculus. Oof. I was taking an Italian literature class and it turns out I'm actually not really good with foreign languages. I can memorize things, but it's, it's actually not a forte. And so I was looking for a fourth class and she said, why don't you try anthropology? It turned out she had been an anthropology professor. And I was like, what's that? I've never heard of anthropology. She said, it's about people. And I thought, okay, I like people. Sounds cool. So I took an introduction to physical anthropology and archaeology class, really enjoyed it, still thought, I don't know, I'm not so much of a science person. Um, and then the second semester, I took a course called Primate Evolution and Behavior with the professor who would be my advisor, Janet Monge, and was like, oh, this is amazing. This is definitely what I want to do. So I made this like huge pivot in my college planning, and here I am. So that's about as close as I think we've come to hearing a story that, that resonates with me. We got a lot of University of Michigan people and Carrie gets all excited, but I was also like, never heard of anthropology, not a science person necessarily, and was an English major and planned to be a writer. So here we are and we're all doing this thing, you know, fortunately I do have a book coming out, so I've done some writing. You know, one of the cool things about the work you do, right, is that you're really, really front and center at the museum, but you're still doing nuts and bolts, uh, down in the weeds, scientific research. So to set up your paper that we're going to talk to you about, I, I have to read a quote here from Coach Lou Holtz, who was a Notre Dame football coach. This was actually written by me, sorry, not Tara, who was at Notre Dame. He's famously quoted as, he says this a lot, so there's various versions of this out there. Players said they want to be happy. You want to be happy for a day, eat a steak, right? Paleontologists have said that meat actually does more than make us happy for an hour a day. It's what made us human, but maybe, maybe not. Can you explain this sort of meat made us human idea or hypothesis that researchers have been sort of putting out there? And what, what, what led you to test it as a hypothesis? You know, I think there's a lot of like social context and historical context of the hypothesis. I'm not going to get into a whole lot of it, but I think it honestly really started with Raymond Dart and the discovery of fossils at cave sites in South Africa where hominin or early human bones were found alongside a bunch of broken animal fossil bones and no stone tools. And Dart went, well, I guess maybe the tools that these hominins or early humans were using were these broken bones. And so there was the idea that early humans were sort of bloodthirsty, you know, hunters that were going after animals and that it was this sort of dominance of nature and this hunting and eating meat from animals that made us human. And so Robert Ardrey, who was a popular writer in the 1950s, picked up on this idea and wrote like a best-selling book that featured it. And then it really wasn't until the 1980s that this idea was tested with some other taphonomic studies, other studies by folks like Lewis Binford, Bob Brain, that realized that not all broken bones at fossil sites are the result of human activity. But I think that Diet is such an important part of any organism's adaptation. It's, you know, really an important part of a biology and our culture. And I just, I think this idea kind of stuck and, and we test it from an archeological perspective, looking at fossil remains as well. That's one of the ways. Uh, Raymond Dart made the discoveries. It was right after World War I. So this red tooth and claw comes through recent worldwide trauma. 
Exactly. Right? This, this, this sense that humans seem to be inherently aggressive. It's always amazing how the social context of the day completely changes our interpretation of the past and how we have a very hard time separating those two and separating the idea that just because something is the way it is now doesn't mean it was always like that, which is something we are all guilty of, I'm sure, at some point in time in the way we interpret. Anyway, so speaking of interpreting, how does one actually detect carnivory and interpret carnivory from you know, the past? And then how does one even get a hold of that data to test these ideas about what folks were eating, uh, whether they be Homo erectus or any form of early hominin? Yeah, great question. There's a actually a variety of different ways, but the ways as a zooarchaeologist, somebody who studies the animal fossil record, the way that I do it is looking for, in essence, the smoking guns of carnivory, butchery marks left on animal fossil bones by stone tool wielding hominins. And so when we find butchery marks, we are certain that hominins had something to do with at least processing these animals, even if they weren't necessarily involved with their demise. So that direct evidence of carnivory is what we look for in the zooarchaeological record. So this paper um, that was led by Andrew Barr and I was a co-author on was in a sense a perfect pandemic project because it basically assembled a lot of published literature. Uh, we looked at fossil assemblages in Eastern Africa between basically 1.2 million years and older, looking for evidence published evidence of carnivory. Some of these assemblages I have studied myself. So that was kind of fun to also put this data set together, but really getting a sense of how much evidence is there out there for carnivory. And we were particularly interested in looking at right after the evolution of Homo erectus at about 2 million years ago. So Homo erectus is a much bigger bodied hominin. It has a larger brain, although kind of relatively, um, you know, the same size as earlier Australopithecines but kind of more modern human body size and shape and longer legs, probably walking further, had different kinds of diets maybe. And so there's been an assumption that Homo erectus incorporated a lot more meat into its diet. I've also had this assumption for a long time. And some of that is based on evidence of these butchery marked fossil bones. But what we wanted to do is figure out, well, are there actually more butchery marked fossil bones or is it just that there are more fossils from particular sites in particular time periods? We have to kind of calibrate this based on the overall amount of fossils that have been pulled out of the ground. So that's what we did. I have a follow-up question specifically on that, and it's related to COVID and the data, because everyone kind of had to shut down field work for a long period of time, like you did. And so I guess the real question here is, is did you and Andrew have to mine from individual articles this data? Or was there an existing repository that you were able to utilize that perhaps grad students right now might also be able to utilize? That's a great question. And it's a little bit of both. So I had um, a wonderful intern who had worked with me before she went to graduate school, Kara Peters, who's at Penn State now. And she put together a whole bunch of this data a couple of years ago. All the archaeological sites in Africa that had butchery mark fossils. I was able to update this. So it wasn't a publicly existing database, but it was one that I had been kind of working on and growing and using for other projects. So we basically, Andrew and the other co-authors had this idea about this paper, reached out to me, knowing that I, I am someone who might be um, who might have had this kind of database, and I did. And I do. So this was a COVID project, but 
but you've literally seen lions eating carcasses. So maybe you can give us some context, like some of your adventures, just so we can we can know you're a credible paleoanthropologist who knows what a carnivore looks like. Sure. So, so as I mentioned, some of these fossil assemblages were ones that I excavated or helped direct the excavations for, particularly at Kubifora in Kenya and Olduvai Gorge in Tanzania. But one of my big research questions is about the potential that hominins scavenged. So in the beginning of when we see these butchery marks on fossil bones going back at least two and a half million years ago, maybe earlier, the hominins are three and a half feet tall on a good day. They don't seem to have any hunting technology. How are they possibly taking down big animals like ancient extinct elephants, hippos, giraffe, big things? Those little bone scraps on the ground beat the shit out of <laughs> things with them. Yeah, so they're, you know, I mean, there's the idea that maybe they're like hanging out in trees and throwing rocks at things. I, I don't know. Even if that was happening, it's not archaeologically visible. One of the things that I've done is study the feasibility of scavenging in the modern world. And that basically means going out in, you know, wildlife conservancies, national parks, protected areas, following predators around and seeing if there was anything left over. There's this idea that passive scavenging, which is like waiting till it's all safe, moving in, there would have just been scraps left over. The counterpart is confrontational or active or aggressive scavenging, and that's chasing predators off the kill. I was really not particularly keen to model that. I didn't want to become a study subject. I'm and disappointed in you, Brianna. <laughs> dare you not give your all in that situation? Where's my dedication? That's the question. See, I just um, have this experimental research site of all these primates throwing rocks and all these carnivores at a distance going like, oh, we had to do a step back. What, what are you guys doing here? Well, exactly. And, you know, throwing them down from the trees. So, uh, you know, in, in studies that I've done, depending on the circumstance, there can be a ton of not only meat left over when predators are done eating their prey, but there's also the marrow inside the bones. There's other tissues like brains and, you know, sometimes even internal gut organs. And so, so I'm really interested in this kind of how did, in a sense, wimpy technology-less early humans get access to these food resources that we know they were getting access to based on the zooarchaeological record. So you focused on Homo erectus, and as you point out, Homo erectus, you know, we're, we're getting into bigger bodies, right? Turconoboy is, is modern size, but as you note, the brain size isn't modern proportions at all. So why focus on Homo erectus? Why not go earlier? Why not go later? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, we assembled the data that we could look a little bit earlier. Maybe it was with the origin of Homo, whatever that was, you know, maybe 2.8-ish million years ago. You know, maybe it's with a different species like Homo heidelbergensis. This was testing a hypothesis that had sort of been out there for a while. And I think, you know, looking at it in terms of origin of other hominids might be an interesting next step. And, and the reason I ask it like that is, is I have my students read Catching Fire every semester, which is R Richard Wrangham's Cooking Hypothesis book. We're right in the middle of Homo erectus right now. So I'm thinking like, I think I just told them, you know, a week ago, Habilines may have started this process because of what Wrangham said. And now I'm going to go back to them and go, maybe not. Is what you guys found pushing back on the cooking hypothesis or or complimenting it? I'm, I'd have to go reread it to, to see. That's a really good question. I mean, I think there, you know, if it wasn't meat, 
that sort of made Homo erectus, if you want to think about it that way? Or was it cooking? Was it foraging for other food resources? I really like, you know, Rangham's Catching Fire book. I'm, I think it's a really intriguing hypothesis. It's really tough to find solid evidence for cooking and fires in the prehistoric record. So I think that's always going to be a tricky one to support. We don't see, you know, from my understanding, we don't see good evidence of like consistent use of fire until you get at least half a million years ago. So like, was this happening and it's just not preserved maybe, but like, can we build our models on maybes? It's a little bit tough. I really like that approach that one, it is balanced where you don't discount it out of hand because like you said, it's a hard thing to know if there's evidence and say absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Uh, I really do like that. But there's another confounding factor that you talk about in this paper, and that's the Olduvai effect and how that might be kind of biasing the interpretation. So could you first tell us what the Olduvai effect is and then if and how it's actually at play with your work? Yeah, absolutely. So the Olduvai effect is the idea that there are particular sites, Olduvai is one of them, Olduvai Gorge, Kubifor is another one, where there's been a long-term history of intensive excavation and research. And if we're pulling more bones out of the ground from these sites, are we just simply more likely to find butchered bones because we just have a bigger volume of bones to look through? The other thing is that sometimes these sites you know, for publication purposes, people will publish like one layer of one excavation in Old Dubai and that that get, and you know, is that a site? Is that we had lots of great philosophical discussions of like, what makes a site? Should we collapse layers even at the same excavation? What if you made an extension on an excavation and you analyzed a whole another set of bones, but they're really from the same area. So I think there's also this kind of slicing and dicing of the actual evidence for publication that is kind of part of that Olduvai effect. So I have a follow-up to that too, because I think there's there are some modern correlates to this as well, that the population at Olduvai, whatever they were doing, might also not be representative of other populations contemporaneously. And we see this misinterpretation all the time with like, say the Hadza. Oh, the Hadza are doing X, Y, and Z, therefore all Pleistonin hominins are doing X, Y, and Z globally. And so that's another really hard thing to be able to work with and, and trying to get folks to understand that there isn't a monolith for, for populations and that these things can really only apply to this particular time and place we can infer, but we have to be really, really careful with that interpretation and broad application. I can't agree more. I mean, I think the idea that we would use a single site as a model, like you said, for the entire Pleistocene, or that we would discount things that like are outside of the realm of that variability. I mean, we've got to expect variability in the fossil record, we certainly see it in the modern world. And the fun questions are like, what conditions is variability? And can we actually look at any of those variables in the past? So that's a that's a methodological problem from site to site. Should we be sampling more at other sites or sampling less at Olduvai or both? I would never say sample less, <laughs> but I would definitely say more at other sites, more in other time periods. If we want to try to build up a more even fossil record than, you know, the few places where we have a ton of fossils from, like, we, we just, we have to go back and dig some more at other places. Let's do that. If, if we had a database with all of the fossils all over the world that were entered in there, how many students could be cranking out some, and we would see all the gaps, like, oh, we can't do this comparison because we haven't sampled enough over there. 
And there are some fossil databases out there. And I think, you know, the folks that are really deep into the database world, then there are questions about like, if people have conflicting data, whose do you use? Do you put all of it in there? Whose do you preference? You know, how does that all work? For this paper, I had to make kind of executive decisions to go, okay, I didn't necessarily reinterpret any publications, but if there were conflicting ones, do we take the most recent one? Do we mm. take the one that included the most bones? You know, what do we do with publications where someone said, well, there may be cut marks on this fossil. We're not sure. So those I excluded. I really tried to go with any analyst who was pretty confident in their own interpretation. But once you start digging into this, you also realize that like the fossil record is not all created equal. I really like that. And yeah, I don't think we can highlight enough the importance of variation across time and space. And so thank you for that. Uh, but also, so what does this mean for the story of human evolution? And what might it mean for us now that perhaps meat consumption was not as important for driving brain expansion as was once thought? And yeah, how do we interpret this? And what happens to the paleo diet, Brianna? <gasps> yes. Oh, well, that's what you have to read my book for. <laughs> But, you know, it's a really good question. And I'm trying to figure out now how to shift my own narrative about this, because I have for a long time said, Homo erectus starts eating a lot more meat. You see this in the fossil record. You know, you see this in its adaptations. So I think it's just a case of, well, we're not sure about this anymore. There may be some other possibilities. I don't think we have to like throw the baby out with the bathwater or whatever kind of expression you want to use. But I think there are some strong caveats now and there may be some other explanations. I will say related to brain size though, my understanding is that we don't really see a big increase in relative brain size until about a million years ago. Like if you plot relative brain size compared to body size, it sort of goes up real steadily from the origin of our family tree until about a million years ago, then body size is staying steady and brain size goes whoop, pretty far up. And so I think that we can, pretty safely exclude incorporation of meat in the diet as a cause for that increase in brain size. Honestly, that's where I think that maybe cooking comes in. That would make sense. And from what I recall, right, that is sort of the arc, right? It's when we get to the point where it's not about getting meat per se, it's about quickly breaking things down. They can be rapidly metabolized. And I'm thinking some of the implications are, well, we're being kind of lazy if we just attribute all protein consumption to meat and marrow because we do like it where else might our ancestors have been getting that necessary protein and if you do throw in cooking you can pretty much throw anything onto the fire that doesn't poison you and make it more edible exactly so it expands the things you can eat it processes it more quickly you don't have to spend hours a day chewing your food like our ape cousins do and then there's also things like insects, which are a great mm. source of protein, not hard to harvest, come out in droves in you know certain times of the year. But wow, that's tough to find in the archaeological record. So I think we can put forth these hypotheses about alternative protein sources, and then we've got to work hard to figure out how to actually test those hypotheses by finding traces in the archaeological record. It's a great point. And now I'm super excited about this book to hear how everything's changing. Although there are many issues with the paleo diet. Anyway, speaking of a book, but so let's shift gears a little bit because I'm going to make the assumption that the book might be public facing, but you do a ton of public facing work because you work at the Smithsonian. So tell us what that's like. Like, 
what is the day-to-day -day of the Smithsonian job like for you? I love the fact that I get to do a lot of fun public engagement work. My position is pretty unique where I, like you said, continue to do my research. I love it, but I also do a lot of public engagement. I help train volunteers. I run public programs. I help keep our website up to date. I run social media accounts. So it's kind of different ways of interacting with the public. And I am constantly kind of learning and refining my skills. I actually participated in a science communication workshop at the museum last week. I gave a science communication workshop at ABA a couple of weeks ago. One of the things I love, I get asked all the time, what's your typical day like? And I say, nope, don't have a typical day. And I really like that sometimes I'm, you know, working on a publication. Sometimes I'm doing Skype a scientist with third mm. graders in Sometimes I'm meeting with a group of other educators at the museum to talk about how we're going to roll cart activities back out on the floor post-COVID. I really like that variety that I have in my job. That's really wonderful. And also, we, we mentioned in the intro, and you weren't here, but you won the AABA Award for Outreach uh, in 2021. So congratulations, since we didn't have you on then. That's really wonderful. And then also, another question... So your job is interesting because it is both academic, but also non-academic, given the outreach portion. And perhaps for the non-academic side, for any listeners who are interested in, you know, taking their anthropology degree and trying to work with the Smithsonian, any bits of advice for them? So, you know, there's, and not even just the Smithsonian, there's all kinds of pathways to use your academic training in order to, you know, go into sort of academic adjacent, all academic, non-academic jobs science communication, science policy, science education. I think, you know, those of us with really strong academic training have really good project management skills. A lot of us have good communication skills. We're good at thinking about audiences. Like I said, always working on this. You know, there are folks that are super good at data science and data analysis. And so I think that there are, again, multiple pathways of using academic backgrounds to go into like academic adjacent fields. In fact, a lot of the educators that I work with at the Natural History Museum at the Smithsonian have really strong science backgrounds, but decided they wanted to do public engagement instead. That's really wonderful to hear and also really, really helpful because a lot of folks going into grad school and wondering, you know, why? What should we do? And, and perhaps want to leave more of the academic area. So that's, I think, really great for folks to hear. But to return to academics, as we kind of start wrapping up, what's next for you research-wise? Are you going to be able to go back into the field? What are the plans moving forward? Yes. And so I'm hopefully going to be able to go back to do research this summer. It's been two years without it. I've missed traveling. I'm working with a team right now that is re-studying fossil assemblages excavated several decades ago in Romania that may have evidence for early human butchery. Stay tuned. And so we went and studied a big bunch of fossils in the summer of 2019. We were planning to go back in the summer of 2020. That obviously got put on hold, but we're planning to go back again this summer. I will also be hopefully in Kenya this summer, Goodness. continuing my long-term study of fossils from a Smithsonian research site called the Lorgasile in Southern Kenya, getting a sense of across a landscape with a whole bunch of different excavations. What were hominids doing there? Were they butchering animals? How does that relate to the stone tools that they left behind? Those fossils are about a million years old. So I'm not actually gonna be doing field work this summer, but I'm gonna be going to a couple of different places to continue some lab work that I've done. And fingers crossed, hopefully maybe next summer I'll get back in the field. 
That's really awesome. And to go ro Romania to, it was Kenya as well, uh, back and forth, that's that's going to be a fun summer. Whether it's field work or lab work, you've got a lot planned. And I hope COVID does not rear another surge to, to mess up your plans. So we'll, we'll look forward to hearing and having you back on to hear about those results. And so always we end our show with kind of the same question and wanting to learn a little bit more about what completes you as a person outside of academia and science outreach what are your hobbies? I know one of them because of your Facebook posts, but of course, let you tell everyone. <laughs> so I guess does having a 10-year-old count as a hobby? So I have a 10-year-old that I spend a lot of time hanging out with. He's a joy. So we live right next to a big regional park. We spend a lot of time outside. I also, in high school and college, was a competitive tennis player. And so I've gotten back into playing tennis during COVID. It's been such a wonderful physical and mental and emotional outlet, just being active. A couple of hobbies that hopefully I'll get back into at some point. I sang in a women's barbershop chorus when I first moved to DC. I'm not doing that these days just because of just kind of limited bandwidth in general. I also was part of a African women's drumming group. I'm not doing a ton of music at the moment, but you know, I sing in my car. I love it. But yeah, that's a lot of wonderful things. The tennis posts are what always came to mind. Uh, anyway, Brianna, this has been really great chatting with you. And I know we have both really enjoyed talking about it and listening about your work because it's fascinating and it's helped really change the way in which we interpret the past in more meaningful and accurate ways. So thank you so much for all the work you do and the time you took with us today. Well, thanks. I'm a big fan of the podcast. It's been such a pleasure being a guest. Thank you so much.